Hello, everybody, and welcome into another episode of Vinyl Obsession. Uh, I just wanted to throw up a little disclaimer before uh, get the episode started here. Um, so we did have a little bit of audio problems with this recording. Uh, you know, we're working with some new equipment, new mics and such, and uh, we noticed that uh, this new mic picks up everything. So I'm very animated when I talk, so sometimes you can hear me you know, hit the table where I'm talking, and uh, a few times you can actually hear me hit the mics. I promise uh, going forward, I'll try to keep my hands to myself. But I just want to give you a little disclaimer. Don't think it's that noticeable, that horrible, but hey, you know, I just wanted to always throw it out there because I always try to put out the best quality of stuff. So enjoy. Welcome in. Uh, episode three, we continue to, uh, you know, defy the odds. Somehow. Having, us, having us back for number three. Uh, we made it. We've made it. I don't, I don't know how. I don't know how or where, but hey, we're, we're back. The people are demanding more, Jessica. We have to give them more. You have to give them another. To, so here we are. We're giving you more. Um, so apologies. It's been a while. It's been a long while. The last mm-hmm. episode was right before Christmas that we put up. Was we it recorded, that long yeah, ago? We put, yeah, we put it right before Christmas before we left. Um, in that time, uh, you know, we had a little bit of time off. We went home for the holidays. It was a good time. Then uh, after the holidays, like mid-January-ish or so, I went out to Florida to Disney with my sister Jamie, and I lived out all my cool Star Wars, deepest, darkest fantasies I ever wanted to do. <laughs> I got to have a drink in the canteen. I get to fly the Millennium Falcon, build my own lightsaber, got told off by a stormtrooper it was awesome but in the process of doing all that i got covid (laughs) and it's strange because before i left i got a booster shot before we left and still can't fight that florida covid man that florida somehow Somehow, disney wasn't the most magical place no it was well i think it was the airport because jamie didn't get sick my sister didn't get sick i got sick and of course by me getting sick i got my lovely beautiful warrior princess over here sick as well Mm, mm -hmm. so we were down for the count for a little bit with covid hence why it's been so long since you've heard from us but we're alive covid can't kill us here we are we're back Uh, that's so that would be rich and just two covid zero (laughs) we beat it twice so um we'll get right into it um so i always like to start off errors and emissions um off the Ramones episode, off episode two. Um, shockingly enough, knock on wood, I haven't heard any errors or emissions, nothing. No one sent anything no in. No one sent anything in. Well, you know what that means. What's that, that mean? Everything in episode two is 100% proven to be factual now. That's true. Until you people <laughs> prove me wrong somehow, you know, it's feel free. But yeah, I really, yeah, there was really no errors, emissions. I don't feel I forgot everything. I think. Go figured me, my long-winded, you know, over-explaining with everything. That seems pretty evident by yeah, this yeah, intro. Yeah, by, by this, by the, oh. <laughs> um, So, yeah, uh, errors and mission-wise, I have none unless get at me, unless you think I missed something. Um, so, just recently, in the last couple of weeks, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame came out, and they came out with their list of nominees, and I purposely did not pay attention to it because I wanted to kind of give you all my raw general feelings 
um, which I'm sure I'm going to have a lot by the look on my And vehicles. somehow you stayed away from it. Yeah, I tried really hard because I wanted to give, because this is my sounding board, everybody. You get to listen to me bitch and complain like an old man. Congratulations. All right, Jessica, hit me with it. Who, who are the nominees this year? Who's, who, who are the nominees? Okay, your 2023 Rock and Roll Hall yeah. of Fame nominees. Yep. yep. I'm just going to go in order that they listed them on their website. Okay. So this shouldn't come as a surprise yeah. based on Stranger Things. Okay. Kate Bush. That doesn't bother me. Kate Bush should go in. Absolutely. She was huge in the 80s, and she was very groundbreaking. I like Kate Bush. I like Kate Bush before it's popular. So right on, Kate Bush is awesome. <laughs> uh, Cheryl Crow. I could see that. I mean, when she came out, she's a little more countryer than rock and roll. But I mean, whatever, I'll give it to her. Like, I get respect for Cheryl Crow. She's a great musician. She's actually a really good guitar player. So uh, I, I, I can get behind that. Missy Elliott. <sighs> I mean, look, I get respect for Misdemeanor, okay? Like, I like, <laughs> I, I, I like Missy, you know, shmur, 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 shmur. Is that what she says in her song? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Like, I got no problem Flip with Missy Elliott. Flip it and reverse it. Yeah, but I think it's fucking ridiculous how... You know, Missy Elliott's in the Rock and Roll of Fame, but yet fucking Motorhead isn't. Well, she's a nominee. She's not in she'll yet. She'll get in. But, like, yet fucking Motorhead isn't in the Hall of Fame. Can you explain that to me, world? Can someone please explain? Continue. Um, after Missy Elliott, we have Iron Maiden. Maiden better make it this year. I know mm-hmm. they've been on the ballot for a while. Maiden better make it in. They, they're very deserving. The amount of records that that band has sold nationwide, like, they are such a huge band. They better make it. Then we have Joy Division slash yes. New Order. Oh, absolutely. They 100% should go in. They're very groundbreaking with that. They were very much like that split off between New Wave and Electronica and Dance and like the 80s. Very great. I love both. I, that little New Order, absolutely. 100% they should go in. Cindy Lauper. <laughs> <laughs> The silence. No, I mean, I mean, like, I, do I have anything against Cindy Lauper? No, I don't. I really don't. Like, but you don't you love know, that time after time, and like, girls just want to have fun and stuff like that. That's <laughs> great. But it's the fucking rock and roll hall of fame, and yet, like, Judas Priest or Motorhead can't fucking get in. But yet, you want to tell me you're gonna put, you're gonna try to put fucking Cindy Lauper in there over Lemmy? We've got like 12 curse words already. You've got Rich on a tangent Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Go ahead. Uh, George Michael. Yes, 100%. I love George Michael. Stuff that he did with Wham, his solo stuff, 100%. Fantastic musician, great voice. Send it, absolutely. Willie Nelson. Yes, 1,000%. Even though he's more country, but the, the, the stuff that he did that was more outlaw country, the stuff that he did with Waylon, as we all know how much I love Waylon Jennings. Waylon and Willie kind of go hand in hand with each other. Absolutely, 100%. Give, put some respect on the man's name. I'm skipping this one because I think you're going to like this one, so I'm okay. going to save it for last. Okay. Um, Soundgarden. Yes, 1,000%. Chris Cornell, best best voice of the last 25 years, 30 years, 100%. The Spinners. I don't even know who the hell that is. The Spinners. I don't know. I don't know who they are. Wow. I feel like I knew them, but if no. you don't, then I must uh, not. Who the hell the Spinners? <laughs> we'll have to find out. Yeah. Episode four, The Spinners. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, a Tribe Called Quest. Love them. Yep. Love A Tribe Called Quest. Uh, the beat down low, what is up? That is, that, I like them a lot. I love them. Nothing but respect. Very groundbreaking R&B rap band in the 90s. 100%. Yeah. Uh, the White Stripes. I can get behind that. Mm-hmm. I can get behind that. Megan, Megan Jack White. 100%. Yep. Warren Zevin. Warren Zevin. Absolutely. Where, he sings Werewolves of London. And I love Warren. 
Excitable Boy is one of my favorite records. Dude, oh my God. Lawyers, Guns, and Money is one of my favorite songs on a bright sunny day to listen to with the windows down, cranked all the way up. Send Lawyers, Guns, and Money. The shit is hitting the fan. It's so good. <laughs> and the last one. Yeah. We just listened to them last night. Okay. Rage Against the Machine. Oh, 100%. Rage Against the Machine <laughs> probably should be the... Fr- so to me, for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, for what you did, what that band did for society and what they continue to do for society to try to like... You know, like I know a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like messages in my music and blah, 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 blah. Which is so funny because a lot of people <laughs> before like the latest election, they were like, oh, I don't like Rage Against the Machine because all of a sudden now they're trying to be preachy and they're trying to they're trying to tell me things. Well, it, since 1991, they've been trying to tell you things since 1991. <laughs> what, what do you think Down Our Day was? What do, you, what do you think Bulls on Parade is about? What do you think Killing in the Name of is about? It's all about anti-government, anti-establishment. 150% send them in. Yeah, I mean, what's, music carries a mess. I mean, certainly there's nonsense songs in the world, but there is music, for the most part, it, it's to carry a message. Yeah, but I mean, I think that them especially, like every song is, there's not like, a Rage Against Machine song that's like, hey, this is how I'm feeling about a girl. Like, everything's about, like, <laughs> the world is fucked up, the government is against us, lights out, guerrilla radio, turn that shit up. Like, oh, dude, yeah. Oh, 100%. Love it. Love Rage. All right, well, there's your nominees. Okay. So... Not a bad list. All right, so we'll get into the whole meat and potatoes of the reason why we're here. We're uh, we're here to talk about, you know, one of my favorite bands of all time, a, a band that I hold near and dear to my heart for, you know, many different reasons. So... Uh, to the Who, um, you know, I really thought that I was gonna do the our first episode on this band, but you know, it's like I think this is gonna be you know rock podcast, album podcast, and therapy session at the same time because <laughs> I have a lot you know connected to this band and I love this band so so much. And so you didn't want to waste the first episode on the Who, so we threw Black Sabbath under the bus. <laughs> no, and I love Black Sabbath. I really do. It's just. You know, like, you know, it's, I didn't want to go too deep into my psychosis or my, my brain or anything in, until we got to this point. But now that I've got you folks, like, with a toe in the water, now I could just drag you in and drown with me. So it's all good. <laughs> we're, it's too late. We're it's in the too, It's we're too in the late. You got, yeah, you, you guys are already in. So buckle <laughs> up. Here we go. Um, before we get started, I wanted to let everybody know just the hell and the trauma that this episode has caused me. <laughs> Jess is laughing because this has taken maybe about, what, 15 to 18 different tries. There's different venues. There's different microphones. <laughs> well, we had, I mean, well, first, we got COVID, so we were already behind we are, with yeah, recording. Exactly. Um, and then the I had, we got new microphones, right? I got you new mm-hmm. microphones for Christmas. And so we tried to use those, but then the USB interface wasn't the right one so we had to order that so we did the episode mm. the other day and then the cat was breathing and you then s- you could pick up the cat breathing and <laughs> you the, cat the cat food cat. went off and then our belt you know then our dog bella started freaking out and barking and it was just and then like i stumbled on my words a couple times kind of in the middle of everything we had to do a different take i was drinking a beer and i let up a burp and i thought jess was multiple gonna get multiple burps. and, I, and I, I thought my beautiful warrior princess <laughs> was gonna rip my soul out of me so we decided you know what why don't we call it a day and this is take like 95 on, we haven't recorded yeah. this the whole way through no we I mean, haven't we only did yeah. a portion no but this is like our multiple take of this and we it, it's 
every other time it's been i've been pretty much like one take johnny and like everything's been very silk and very smooth this is the first one we've hit a couple bumps but you know what i think it only makes us stronger it only makes us better it's a learning so, experience it's a learning and, curve folks know. i do it all for you everything i do every, all my blood it's all for you folks it's all for you fans and uh yeah we're st- i mean we're sharing a mic but we'll we'll get yeah, everything sorted we'll out. figure it out we'll get there eventually <laughs> right all right so the who um we'll First thing we'll do, obviously, is just talk about the members. Um, you know, Pete Townsend, Pete Townsend's guitarist, vocalist on a good handful of tracks. He usually always has a couple of vocal tracks on each record. And then he also writes 99% of everything being lyrics, music. He's the creative driving force of the band. He really, really is. Uh, Roger Daltrey's vocalist, sometimes does plays like a second rhythm guitar, also plays some harmonica as well. And then uh, the almighty Keith Moon, like the Thor of drumming, like <laughs> just the absolute maniac that is Keith Moon that I feel is top three drummers and also a top three bass player in the band as well, John Answistle. Like a lot of people don't give love to John Answistle. If you ever want your mind blown, go on the YouTube. They have um, isolated bass tracks of just John, of John Answistle just playing on like what... You know, sits in the mix is sounds like oh, you know, it's a cool baseline, but like it's how crazy and how absolutely insane this man was. His playing style is unmatched still to this day. I love it. So, uh, formation of the band, uh, they were formed. Uh, they started playing together in 1964 in London, England, but they go back before that. Um, Pete and John grew up pretty close to each other, and they went through school with each other. Um, they also knew Roger as well from school, but Roger was a little, couple years older. He was a couple grades higher. Um, at one point, all three of them did go to the same primary school, but Roger was kicked out because, uh, you know, he had a few too many fights, and then he also tried to light the school on fire. So wow. he, was asked, <laughs> he was asked to leave, and Roger never finished school. So he was kind of a hellion when he was younger, mellowed out with his age. And I feel that because I, I feel that very much. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's probably for the best that, you know, get it out of your system when you're in primary school versus once you're a rock star. Amen. Was he me- more mellow when he was kind of living the rock star life? I mean, he was still was kind of, I mean, he wasn't like the, at the level of Keith Moon, which we'll get into. <laughs> uh, but... I mean, he was, you know, he's still like, you know, he wasn't taking handfuls of drugs like everybody else was in the band. He was pretty much like, by that point, he was done with all that because he was, I mean, he's a couple years older. Um, So Roger at that point had a band called The Detours and they were a skiffle band. Uh, Skiffle is, was very popular at that time in England. Like the Beatles started out as a skiffle band and it's pretty much like an acoustic guitar a washboard and uh, a stick with a string on it to make a bass, pretty much. And it's was very popular at that time in music. It's very slow, very mellow, like very kind of like happy-go-lucky kind of poppy kind of music. Um, they all kind of shared the common fact that they all love the blues. And they kind of wanted to do like a rhythm and blues, like a harder edge something a little different than Skiffle than what everybody else is doing. So they, you know, they joined forces. They start doing like all blues standards, 12 bar blues and stuff like that. And they start touring up and down England. But they, you know, the missing key ingredient to this all still wasn't in the picture yet. 
one night they're playing out in, in London, and then all of a sudden they run into Keith Moon. Um, Keith Moon, who <laughs> at the time was only 17, told him he was 18 to kind of be like, oh, yeah, like, hey, I'm an adult, blah, 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 blah. Um, at the time, he had like this ginger hair because he was absolutely obsessed with the Beach Boys, <laughs> and he wanted to, you know, bleach his hair blonde like the Beach Boys, and it didn't didn't happen well when he dumped peroxide in his hair. Um, at the time, Keith was in a surf rock band, like a surf band, which is very odd because if you think Keith Moon, you think of absolutely crazy, over the top loud rock music, and not like you know, do you love me, surfer girl? You know, and fun, 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 and stuff like that. So Keith goes up to uh, Pete right at the end of the show and goes, hey, you know what? I think you guys are great, but your drummer sucks, and I'm 500 times better than your drummer is, and we could be the best band in the world if you'd let me drum for you. And Pete being Pete, like, laughed at him and was like, all right, kid, let's see what you got. And they met up, and they had a jam session, and they were absolutely blown away because it's that very famous Keith Moon style, like a jet engine taking off behind you, very lot of power, very lot of force, and just these crazy drum fills that really no one's been, it, like it's a, it's a strange style because it's not like a standard 4-4, four, four, it's kind of like just all over the place. It's like he had eight arms when he was playing. <laughs> Did you know, so, so with Keith Moon, now mm-hmm. I was not able to find an interview with him that actually confirmed this and I think unless we can raise Jim Henson from the dead it's just it's all hearsay <laughs> but I wish we could raise Jim Henson from the <laughs> dead know. so we wouldn't have funny sounding Muppets <laughs> but there are you know articles out there that say claim that Animal the Muppet was mm. based off of Keith Moon <laughs> <laughs> I buy that like it makes it makes absolute perfect sense it makes 150 million percent perfect sense um, so, you know, now they're starting to go together with their, you know, their harder style. They got Keith behind the kit now. They're kind of a, a four-piece. And um, a little further down the line, um, Pete's friends, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp, who he met in art school, um, they were both filmmakers. And what they wanted to do was kind of make a like a documentary about a band from you know from their you know from their beginnings rising up and you know becoming this you know wherever the road took them if they were to become like famous rock stars or whatever and like they asked pete they said hey can we do it with you guys and let us be your manager so they were like yeah cool absolutely like they're all friends and they kind of all shared the same common like mod vision there like mm-hmm. mod is like modern style in england at that time in the mid 60s was like you know your ben sherman outfits everyone looked high fashion and took handfuls of speed and were on motor scooters <laughs> and just like there were like different groups they all battled each other it was like i don't know like a west side story with different better clothes <laughs> put it that way hey i think west side story mm. had some killer costumes yeah officer Kropke crop you <laughs> um so, you know, Kit and Chris are like, hey, like, let us also rebrand you. We're going to change you from the who to the high numbers because this is more, a little more pizzazz to it. So, you know, it's, it's not the who, it's the high numbers. And getting, fancy. F- getting very fancy. And for a little bit, they went touring around as the high numbers. And at this time, Pete took it upon himself because he really wanted to write... Um, his first ever song they were doing covers up until that point so keith went on excuse me keith pete went home 
and he wrote I Can't Explain, which is the first song that he ever he ever wrote. And it's a phenomenal song. When you think that's someone's first effort at making like their own music, it's crazy that's what came out on the other end of it. So um, Shell Tell Me, who is the um, producer for the Kinks, and the Kinks are like the hottest band in England at the time. And actually, they're breaking pretty big over in America at the same time, too. Everyone loved the Kings, so they had kind of like the raw, raunchy sound. If you think like, you know, you really got me and stuff like that. And when that came out, that was like the heaviest thing ever. Like everyone was like blown away by it. Just you wait. Just exactly. So they call up Shell Townley and Kit Lambert holds up the phone while The Who is playing. And he hears about 10 seconds and Shell Townley immediately was like, yep, absolutely. I will produce them. They sound fantastic. This is exactly what I want to work with. So they get him into the studio. They cut I Can't Explain into a single um, they're signed to a really shit deal on Brunswick Records, thanks to Shell Townley, who now was kind of owning the rights to everything because that's what they did back in the day. They kind of just raped and pillaged with all these up and coming bands. They just signed these horrible deals. And, you know, trying to get airplay back then it isn't like it is now. Um, you know, in America, you know, it. The government doesn't, you know, the FCC, I guess, kind of controls the radio, but they're not, like, in control of the radio, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, out over in England, the BBC, the BBC at that time ran all the radios. It was BBC One, BBC Two, BBC Three, Radio One, Radio Two, all that stuff. And they were not playing anything like that. They thought that was, like, way too out of hand. Like, <laughs> they did not, they thought it was too rebellious and yeah, 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 yeah. So, um the way the who got famous kind of off the rip besides playing live and to get people out there to you know hear their music is they had uh these boats that would go up into the english channel through england through london and they would go about five miles outside of london and they would actually be able to produce a radio symbol signal and it was called radio caroline so it was pirate radio and they had played kind of like the music the kids wanted to listen to like the the, the evil rock and roll so it's yeah. pirate radio. So they're literally on pirate ships. Correct. Yeah, they're pirate, pirate ships. That's where the term pirate radio came That's from. That's really cool. Exactly. Um, so I can't explain. Starts going really well. Sells very well just because of everything from pirate radio. Still not playing BBC or anything like that. They go back into the studio. They make their second signal. Bleh, single, excuse me. Uh, anywhere, anyhow, anywhere. Anyway. I, anyway, it's there's any every any is all thrown, the any's all the any's. Um, so you know that single does very well too. Again, like for a second song that was ever written for Pete, absolutely insane. Very very great single. Um, now the demand was coming out for a record, and they really wanted to get in the recording studio and kind of give everyone a crack and say, hey, you know, let's see what we could do for produce a full record. And before we get into their discography and we start breaking down like the vinyl and stuff like that jesco do you remember the first time you ever heard the who so i knew you've asked me this every time and so i knew the question was coming and i did try to think about it Mm -hmm. and i can't really pinpoint the first time that i heard them um i'm i'm assuming it was probably around high school time so up until you know mid high school age i was very just 
what pop culture music mm-hmm. that was whatever was on the radio uh was what i was listening to nothing super eclectic and mm-hmm. then i joined some theater groups through the town so i was introduced to a wide age range of people and that was when i started really getting introduced to a lot of different mm-hmm. styles of music outside mm-hmm. of just what's on main top 100 radio we wouldn't have probably been friends so. oh we definitely wouldn't yeah. have been friends um <laughs> <laughs> uh, no we might have i was probably, probably i, I, I hung out with a lot of different groups what do you think i'm different mm-hmm. okay i'm mm-hmm. joking I'm just giving <laughs> shit. yes i know i'm different um but it was it was around that time and i'm sure the first song was probably baba o'reilly yeah probably that's that seems to be everyone's kind of like you know the who was like the first song that they <laughs> mentioned or no like i think that's their top song on spotify is probably bella o'reilly um you know for me it's you know, this is where it kind of gets very kind of, it got never, you know, a little emotional for me because, you know, the connection that I have with this band is so like deep and tight because of my father. And, you know, I'm sure many of you listening to this are family and friends. Hello. Thank you for listening. And, you know, kind of like, you know, the story of my old man, uh, those who don't, or I've never talked to you about it. I lost my dad about 13 years ago. Um, I lost him to brain cancer. And this was my dad's absolute favorite band. He loved The Who. Like, literally played them constantly, all the time. Uh, you know, in my house, we never had, were like, had like a lot of artwork or framed anything on the walls. There was only two things ever, like in the apartment that I grew up in. <laughs> um, one was a, like, a, like a drawing of John Wayne in this horrible gold frame and the other one was a frame poster of the who and that just goes to show you like my old man it was like no the who like it needs to be prominently displayed in our living room it's just yeah it's you know um I listened to my whole entire life I was always around it because it was that it was just this thing like that my dad was such a huge 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 fan and my dad is so like paramount with me with music because I feel I get a lot of my kind of taste from him that I kind of took on you know his flavor you know I mean I mean I'm sure you know when I was a kid you know when I was like a rebellious teenager I don't think he was too into like you know like corn and Limp Bizkit <laughs> when I went through my like new metal phase or the first time you heard Radiohead he was like are you okay are you really depressed do you need help <laughs> like stuff like that but I mean I still dug like 90% of what he listened to and he listened to like 90% of what I listened to you know? I love that so it always was around me and I just have like I can't hear or listen to The Who without thinking of my old man and it's just kind of like that one thing that I just hold very very dear to me about this band is the connection I had with my dad about this band. That's a really sweet connection, though. Mm. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. So now that I made everyone nice and sad, um, we'll go on. We'll talk about the discography here. Um, so they get to the studio. Uh, it's released in late 1965. It's released in the UK in December of 1965. Released in the US in April of 1966. Um, so it's released in the UK known as just... The Who of My Generation. And it's got this awesome, awesome cover. It's got a, like an overhead shot of them on a rooftop and they're in all in their mod clothes. And John Entwistle has like a Union Jack over them. It's the coolest picture ever. I love it. It's on Brunswick Records. If you ever find an original of that, you won't. But if you ever mm-hmm. did, 
punch anybody in your way who tries to block you from that record because it's worth so much money and then give it to me. Um, <laughs> hey, let them keep it. No. If, they, if, they, if they commit assault and battery, so. <laughs> <laughs> they get that record. Uh, the first U.S. version would be on DECA. And uh, I have show and tell for Jessica this time around. I actually have visual aids because, especially with The Who, I have 99.9% of everything that they ever put out, like original first presses. Because, again, it was very important to me that I have these. So I have, uh, in the U.S., it was released as The Who Sings My Generation. And it's this very Beatles-y looking cover. Like, they literally look like a, a boy band almost. <laughs> they look so young. It's like this shot of them in front of Big Ben. Um, it's on the DECA label. DECA is through MCA. Um, a lot of pretty much everything that they did in the U.S. for a long time was all through DECA. Um, so you're going to be looking for these those deco labels or those true fruit first presses. Anything that says MCA after that is those are the the 80s rep- late 70s early 80s represses. I mean they they sound okay, but it's it's just I think you want to keep it truer to the sound. So deco, go for yeah, the deco. They're hard to find, especially now. I mean when I first started recording, they were kind of easy to find, but now they forget about it. Everybody wants the original decos. Yeah. Um, so talking about the record itself, Shell Tanley was the producer. Uh, it's a fantastic first effort. It's a very raw sounding record. They're still very much finding their way because I mean it's it, it's the it's like the mid sixties. Um, you know, it's showing the this album is showing just like insane growth with Pete's writing because this is the first batch of songs he would ever wrote. Think about like so technically in the first three songs he ever wrote was like I can't explain, you know. Anyhow, anywhere, anyway, and my generation. Like that's just like mind blowing to that's me. Incredible. And the reason why like I like Pete so much as a song as a as a songwriter is because like everything has like the twist of the knife to it. Like everything is just like sarcastic. And everything mm-hmm. is kind of like angry and bitter. Like he's not like, you know, the Beatles at the time were like, you know, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Pete's, Pete's <laughs> like, you know what? Fuck you. I hope I die before I get old. Like you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's phenomenal. You know, don't try and dig what we all sing. Like it's it's phenomenal. Like it's his writing style is just a a plus, absolutely I mean, a plus. Did you know that every so every hit single that mm-hmm. they had, uh, Pete Townsend wrote except for one of them. Do you know which one? As Ooh. soon as I tell you who wrote it, you'll know it. No, I have no idea. Like, like it, it makes sense that all their big singles repeat songs because I can't even think of like it would have to be a, like a John Entwistle song, probably. But so it was, was actually it? an Eddie Cochran song. Oh, Summertime Blues. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, off of Live at Leeds. Okay, mm-hmm. Summertime Blues. Okay, that makes sense. But everything else, Pete. It's that just shows you what a prolific songwriter this gentleman is. It's it's insane. Um, a couple of other big songs on the record that I really like. Uh, the kids are all right, are phenomenal. That song is still played to this day when they go on tour. Fifty three years later, they're still playing. The kids are all right. Um, the song that I really rate that's kind of a deep track that not a lot of people don't give it a lot of love is it's a, it's a legal matter. A legal matter is a phenomenal song. I love that. A legal song. matter again was because Pete has got like that beautiful way of looking you in the eye and smiling, and you think it's all poppy and nice, and he's twisting the knife because legal matter is just about him getting a divorce at twenty one. Oh. It's a legal matter, baby. That's that's le- <laughs> that's literally what he's saying. He's like, it's all done. It's just a legal matter now. Oh, he's he's so he's, void of emotion. He, oh my god, it's so no. Well, I mean, he's very depressed. He's very sensitive. Like, 
You can almost say that maybe Pete Townsend was like the first emo kid. You know what I'm saying? Like he's very like, oh, I'm so artsy and I'm so dark and I'm so different and I'm, you know, oh, look at me. I'm so artsy and different. Um, so album comes out, does pretty well. Like they're getting more and more popular. Um, it's actually doing pretty well in the States. Um, so in between my generation and the next record, they released a couple singles because that's, again, that was the thing back in the day. Like you'd release singles and then like the album would come out after, even though these singles weren't really on any album. They were just releasing singles to release singles. Um, Substitute was released, which is hands down one of my favorite Who songs. I absolutely love Pete, his writing in this. It's has one of my favorite song lyrics of all times. So, you know, I was born with a plastic spoon in my mouth. And kind of giving that middle finger to say everyone's like, hey, I didn't have every advantage that you have. I, you know, grew up dirt poor. I was born with a plastic spoon in my mouth. Hmm. Like, phenomenal. Um, I'm a Boy came out. I'm a Boy is, like, think about, like, in, like, the 66, 67 when the song came out. I'm a Boy is about a song about parents um, who wanted a girl, but when the baby arrived, it was a boy, and they were just like, oh, no, one way or another, we're having a girl. So they, you know, they made him dress like a girl and called her Sally Mo- Sally May and stuff like that, even though he's like, no, I'm a boy, and my mom won't admit it. That's what the whole song wow. is about. Yeah, it's a great song and crazy subject matter for that time. Yeah. So um, second record comes out, uh, December 1966. Two different names yet again because that was like the hip thing to do. Like the UK would get one name and like the US would get another name. Um, so in in the US and the UK it was called a quick one, a quick one while he's away. Uh, back here in the states it was called Happy Jack um, because I think the record company really wanted to push Happy Jack as like the big single for um, the American market and very cool cover. Like it's them, you know like a very cartoonish it looks like very like it's a very 60s the very 60s cartoonish. cartoonish like yeah it looks like like the who was like through yellow submarine you know what i'm saying like it looks like if they were drawn in pepperland like it, it, it's it is a cool looking cover um so shell Townley is uh has a falling out at this point with the band because they're pissed because they're like hey like my generation is huge and the song's everywhere and we're going on tours all over the world and Yet we still don't have two pennies. Well, what would you call pences? Two pences. Two pences. Two, two, two pounds. Two, two pounds to rub together. <laughs> and, um, you know, so their managers, you know, they get them out of the shit deal that they ran with Brunswick. So this, the for UK press, would be on Polydor. Um, so it'd be on that red Polydor label in the UK and the US. It's the first true first press is on DECA label. Um, so... Kit Lambert goes out and he's now going to produce with Pete. So they're kind of like collaborating together on the on the record. Uh, when they entered the studio, Pete kind of challenged the band to write their songs. because He's like, you know what? Like, this is unfair to put the whole entire band's success on me. Why doesn't everybody go out and try to write a song and bring it in and we'll put it on the record? <laughs> so, you know, and Twistle, who's kind of a songwriter in his own right, he wrote Whiskey Man, Boris the Spider. Great songs. Like, they're actually really, really good. And Antwistle would go on to pretty much always have a song on each record that he wrote. Um, Keith Moon penned out, and he wrote I Need You, and it's not good. So Keith, just stick to drumming. <laughs> um, See My Way was the Roger song. Um, 
not really a great song. Um, Roger's just not really a great song. Roger reminds me of like Elton John. Like, it, they're, you know, Elton John's handed lyrics from Bernie Taupin and like is able to interpret them like the way that it should be with that feeling and he gets into it and he makes the songs his own. And that's what Roger's talent is. That's what Roger's really good at. He's not really the best writer. So what I'm noticing, because as you said, you have show and tell here for me. Yeah. I'm noticing on the record, they have song titles coming out yeah, their from mouths. each band yep. members. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm assuming it matches up with ones they yep. wrote. So See My Way is coming out of Roger's mouth. Yep. Um, this one, Cobwebs and Strange. Is, did Keith Moon write that? No, because he only wrote one song on the record. He only he only he only wrote "I Need You." Okay. Yeah, like maybe they're just like, oh, we need to throw two two songs on each one. <laughs> don't um, add, like, don't yeah. advertise. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, rest of the record is just written by Keith. Um, Keith. Oh my God, by Pete. <laughs> and um, you know, it's of course the two biggest songs are "Happy Jack," which is a huge song for them, and also the most ambitious efforts at this point which would be a quick one while he's away which was a an eight minute rock opera piece about a somebody who's in a war who is away at war and his you know his girlfriend at home cheating on him and then somehow there's like a a pedophilic train conductor involved in the story with like a little girl like diddling the little girl and it's it's very very interesting is that, I don't know that interesting is yeah. not the word I would use for that. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's again like that's just Pete's writing. He likes mm. to be very different, very out there. So did he? Because I I listen, I was listening to that album, mm-hmm. um, and I remember hearing that song. I was like, oh, this this is kind of weird. What this this subject matter? Yeah, yeah. Did like did Pete have childhood trauma? Like yeah. Oh, and we're gonna get into more <laughs> of that. Let me tell you. Don't oh, you worry, because that that seems to be the like like a bottomless well for oh. Pete Townsend. Oh, poor so, Pete. <laughs> don't worry. We're gonna get to we're gonna get to the big. Um, I had a shitty childhood record soon. Okay. Don't worry. Um, so. End of this record, it's released on Polydor in the UK. Um, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp have the idea, like, hey, you know, why don't we start our own record label? And, you know, we already have a pretty hot band right now. We have The Who signed. So why don't we, from here on out, why don't we release every Who album on track and Polydor will just, you know, will just distribute it for us. Um, so they needed, like, another couple acts. Um, their second act that Chris Lambert that Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp signed was a, a, a gentleman that you might all have heard of. Uh, their second act that they ever signed was actually Jimmy fucking Hendrix. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Um, so he was on track records over in the UK. And he, was he, he, was he big at that point? He was starting to get big at that point. He was, like, this is 1966, so he's starting to get pretty big. Like, Are You Experienced is about to come out, and... Uh, I'm sure we're going to have a Jimi Hendrix episode, but like the whole thing was like he was pretty big in England before he was pre- he, he was big in, in the U.S. And like Paul McCartney and Pete Townsend and Eric Clapton would all go out to like the club. They're like, oh, like we heard this new guy from America's in town and he just started a band. And then all of a sudden Jimi Hendrix comes out and plays guitar and Eric Clapton tells a story. He's like, yeah, when I go home, I don't want to play guitar anymore. Oh, no. Like, it's just like I, I'm also, he's 500 times better than I am. How could you ever compete? Yeah. Um, so since they're both managed by the same managers, 
they both get spots on the Monterey Pop uh, show, the Monterey Pop Festival in California. And uh, for an arrival between the band, they're all trying to bicker about who's going to go on first. Because they're afraid that no one wants to follow the other one. And Pete does not want Hendrix to go on first because their whole, whose whole gimmick at this point at live shows that they really haven't done in America was they would like to smash their instruments at the end. He called it like like auto destruction art or something like that. <laughs> um, and he was afraid that like, hey, like Hendrix might steal our gimmick or he might try to upstage us and da 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 da. So no, screw you, Jimmy. We're gonna go on first, and you know they go on first and they they do awesome. They blow everybody off the stage. They do their you know destruction of all their instruments and walk off the stage. Hendrix comes on next. And he's like, okay. Uh, Hendrix ends up closing the show, and this is the very famous uh, Jimi Hendrix lighting his guitar on fire. Oh, and Pete no. is pissed because <laughs> now he's like shown up because he's like, how how in the hell? I, seriously, yeah. like that? You're gonna outshow me like that? He's like, damn, you know, like <laughs> it's it's like it's probably the most famous picture of Jimi Hendrix is him like kneeling down like over his flaming guitar, like trying to get the flames to go up at his fingers and stuff like that. It's a very cool shot, and that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. was that? Was that the first time he did that? Yes. Like, so he yeah. didn't just a fuck with Pete. Pretty much. Like, they kind of had, like, a like a famous rivalry, like, going back and forth with each other. Um, you'll notice, like, when I get more into these stories that, like, all the bands in the UK, they're all very friendly with each other, but they had, like, a big rivalry with each other. Like, they like to, like, make sure that they were, you know, well, everyone so, was encouraging everybody, put it that way. Yeah. And if they're all trying to come up at the same time. Right. Right. Uh, they go back into the studio in the in the 1967, and they um, they put out what is a monumental step forward. It's the Who sellout, awesome record. Pete's got the idea where he's like, "Hey, like, why don't we do a record that's kind of a nod to pirate radio, where you know, in between our songs, like, we actually write like jingles about like actual products that are out there, <laughs> and it spawned like I think what might be one of my favorite album covers ever." It has Pete with his shirt off, and he's got a giant stick of deodorant rubbing it under his arm, his odorono. And then the picture next to him is Roger, like, covered in Heinz baked beans in a tub. So he's in a tub full of Heinz baked beans. It's the it's the coolest cover. It, it, really, it really, cool. really is. At first, when I first saw this cover, who knows how long ago, um, I thought... He was rubbing like a can of baked beans on his arm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, eh, Odorono, like, he wouldn't really know that Odorono was like a deodorant. I'd never, like, I saw, I listened to the song, and that's how I kind of figured out with, you know, um, what Odorono was. <laughs> we'll talk about the songs on the record on uh, the Who Sell Out. Um, Odorono, even though it was meant to be a jingle, like, it, it's literally just like a deodorant song, the song <laughs> is so good. It's such a good song. And, like, you really don't <clears throat> get what it is. And, like, he's like, you know, you, know, you should have used Odorono so you don't smell kind of a thing. And it's it's phenomenal. It's so good. Did they have to get licensing, anything, to, to <laughs> use, like, the pictures and write about the products? Well, at first, like, back in the 60s, I don't think they really cared <laughs> much care. about that yeah. kind of that stuff. Um, like, come to find out later, it, it, it would have been a big deal, but I think like every, like the way that like the products looked at it, and they're like, ah, it's free advertisement for us, and but a popular band singing about us, sure, <laughs> we'll um, take it. Yeah, 
So, like, Oda Run was a great song on the record. Heinz Baked Beans song is actually phenomenal. It's really, really good. <laughs> Marianne with the Shaky Hand is a phenomenal song. And, of course, the big monumental song from the record is I Can See For Miles. And when Pete wrote I Can See For Miles, he said to himself, this is it. This is going to be my, my, magna, my magna opus. This is going to be my number one. Here we go. I'm finally going to get my number one song. It's gonna be the like the, the song of the year. What I really like about the song is Keith's drumming is insane in that song because you, it's not really like a straight four four. It's just like literally one entire drum fill. Like nothing is just like like it's not like a straight beat. Like everything is just like it's just like all a straight drum fill. It's crazy. I wish you guys could have seen the just pure effort that went into yeah. that, that air I drum. I take my Keith Moon drum fills super serious, <laughs> folks. Um, so I Could See For Miles comes out. It's a hit. It's not number one, but it's but it's a hit. And Pete does an interview in NME Magazine, which is like the UK equivalent of like what Rolling Stone would be for us. Mm, okay. And Pete says, it is the heaviest song of all time. I wrote the heaviest song of all time. Da, 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 da. And Paul McCartney was in the, the studio with the Beatles. And they were making the White Album at the time. And Paul McCartney got pissed at this for some reason. <laughs> And he was like, nope, I can write a song that's heavier. And that is actually what spun Helter Skelter. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, like, it's kind of funny how, like, they all influence each other one way hey, or if, another. If that's what it took to get yeah. Helter Skelter. Yeah, like, I always thought that you, was... Thank you, Pete. I always thought that was such a cool story. Um, so, 1967, 1968, they go on a tour. They're doing more of, you know, the UK, all through Europe, back in America, all that good stuff. Um... And tail end of 1968, I'm going to go into the studio now. And um, I know you harped on, hey, did Pete have a hard childhood? Mm-hmm. Um, this is the I Had a Hard Childhood album. Oh, no. <laughs> this is, um, so he gets very ambitious. And he says, you know what? I have an idea. I really enjoyed writing a quick one while he's away. I want to expand on something like that. And I want to write a full-on story, a full-on rock opera. And he called it Tommy. Uh, it's Pete's most ambitious effort. It's a full-on rock opera. Tommy is the story of you know of a deaf, dumb, and blind boy growing up in post World War II in England. Uh, the album goes through his trials, tribulations. Uh, he meets a gypsy who tries to help him see again, and he gives him acid. So it's the acid queen. Oh, jeez! Like because that's how you're supposed to open your mind. And you're supposed to be able to see. You take the acid. He's got a cousin, cousin Kevin, who ties him to a chair and beats him because you know that's he's. You know, deaf and blind, and he can't speak, so he'll never say anything. And then to double down on that, uh, more, I'm sure, more childhood trauma for Pete Townsend. Uh, there's a song called Uncle Ernie on that record. It's sung by John Antwistle, and it's literally about the molestation of the kid, about, of Tommy. Oh my God. And why, did, why did John sing it and not Pete? It, it was too, I think it was too, in, too intense for Pete to do it. Like, he, I, like everyone kind of always wondered that because it's like a, a kind of a serious number on the record, and Pete always liked to do the serious number. And the fact that like John did it, like you could tell that like it was too close to home to him. And he's been asked that in interviews, and he's like, ah, maybe the subject matter is a little too close for me, and yeah. that's why I couldn't do it. A little too much. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. So you know, it's a real mind fuck when you think about it. You know, if the kid is like you know. 
tied up by his family. He's, you know, beaten up and his uncle's molesting him and his, all this horrible stuff. And all of a sudden, he's a really good pinball player, too, somehow. He's got to have that character. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, like, he's a, he, 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 you know, he stands like a statue. He becomes part of the machine. He feels all the bumpers. It's, you know, he's the pinball wizard. Like, he's the greatest pinball player in the world. And then, you know. It's a redemption. It song. is a redemption. Um, so, at the end, he gets his hearing and he gets his sight back. Um, yeah, we, that's what the big, you know, big song on the record i'm free because like he can finally he's free to see and hear and like he can finally live his life normal acid will do that to you acid (laughs) i know it's drugs drugs you know what you know what they say drugs and molestation is what brought us here and that's 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 yeah that's yeah pete's got a lot of trauma man he kind of let it go in a you know in in a very cool concept of a record um pete had the idea you know when this record was recorded, he says, hey, when we go out on tour, I want to tour it, but I only want to tour it in, like, opera houses. I want, like, the full operatic feel. Like, I don't want to play stadiums or, like, you know, it's or arenas. I just want to do it in very famous old opera houses. And that's what he did. He toured around the world just playing, like, very famous opera houses. And that's what they did with Tommy. It was a four-piece with backing tapes. Uh, for like you know all the instruments and stuff like that which was nuts because like it's it's the late 60s and like nothing like that has ever been done before that's really cool and it was a big hit it it, it, it went really really well and, and this is just peak again every single record he's just upping the ante he's just saying hey this is how good Verena I am it's boom 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 you know the whole beginning of that record, like this whole record, like don't pick and choose the songs, just listen to it from start to beginning. Like that beginning medley of Overture, you know, It's a Boy, 1921, Amazing Journey and Sparks is, is so good. You know, The Acid Queen, Pinball Wizard, I'm Free, phenomenal. The record does super, super, super well. Sells insanely well, it blows the band up. Uh, so much to the point that they actually closed out the, uh, the first night of Woodstock. They had like a midnight performance of, at Woodstock and they performed Tommy, you know, start to finish. Wow. It was very, very How cool. How long is it, start to finish? It's a little over an hour. I think it's about 70 minutes okay. or so. Um, and this record, I think the other big thing is like Roger takes like a step forward vocally. Like he really, you can tell his performance is just very soulful in this. And when he's touring, when they start touring, he asks Pete, he's like, hey, like, don't refer to me as Roger through the show. Refer to me as Tommy. Like, I want to get into it. I want to be the character. And, you know, he really took his singing to, like, another level. And now, now this band is otherworldly. Because I always kind of felt bad for Roger Daltrey. Like, can you imagine being in a band with, like, with three virtuosos where people are like, oh, my God, this is, like, the best musicians of all time, plus Roger Daltrey. <laughs> you know, like, so, like, I get, like, he wanted to, like, up his game, and he finally did. Tommy does very well. Um, and before they go back into the studio to record what I feel is one of the top records of all time, all time, um, they double up and they produce the greatest live album of all time before that comes out. It's called The Who Live at Leeds. If you've never heard The Who Live at Leeds, Pause this podcast right now. Go on the Apple Music or Spotify and just let it fly. It is awesome. It is so good. Just start to finish. It's 
shows like the the freight train that this band was live at that point. It's just you drop the needle and it takes you. Like Young Man Blues, like the beginning intro to Young Man Blues is insane. It's just it's so so good. And live records at this time were kind of like oh it's like a greatest hits of like their live stuff this is just like a lot of blues covers and like there's a couple you know there's, there's this version of pinball wizard and stuff like that that's about it but it's so good and it was so ahead of its time i'm not alone thinking of this it's on a lot of people's like greatest live albums list is the who live it leads and record wise what's really awesome is it comes with like 12 different inserts inside it has like the record contract there's a big poster like cool like poster of the show inside and stuff like that very collectible very sought after record that's really cool yeah. i like that a lot um and so what's also cool is read that on the on the on the label there what it says uh crackling noises are okay do not correct so pete <laughs> wanted the absolute most raw sound that he could get and he's like hey you know what sometimes it's be cracks and sometimes it's gonna be feedback i don't want you to overproduce this record mm. and i think that's why i like it so much is because it's so raw it's it's yeah. like an actual live performance it's got the scars yeah. to it and that's what i like about it yeah don't mess don't mess with it this don't mess with a good thing amen that's right so in the tail end of 1970 they go into the studio to get Pete's new idea. Pete's got this idea. He's like, hey, I'm doubling up on the idea of Tommy. My next thing I want to do is going to be an audio-visual presentation. I want these different lights, and I want video. It's going to be us connecting with the audience through the music, and they're going to feel the vibes, and it's going to be how you know religion and things are sold to you, and da-da-da-da-da. And they all kind of looked at Pete, and they're like, Pete, yeah, Pete's lost his fucking mind. Like, what is this? So they kind of approach Pete and they're like, hey, man, like, I, we just toured the world doing like a 70 minute operatic piece, like, where we had to perform like every night. And like, and like, you know, why would you want to up the ante? Like, it worked. Don't you think maybe this might not work very well? And they approached him and Pete shut down. Like, he got very, very sad about it. Um, the management wasn't sold on the idea. The rest of the band wasn't sold on the idea. And Pete started to lose his corporate reality at that point. He was just so de- sad, depressed. He was devastated. And he wants to scrap the idea of all the songs that he's written. He hasn't even played him the songs for the band yet. And they're like, oh, well, you know what? Like, there's an album's worth of material here. Like, why don't we not do that? Why don't we just listen to what we have? And why don't we just try to make a straight rock record? And it's probably the best rock record of all time. Yeah, it's definitely my my favorite album. It's the who's who's next. Like the 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 joke is at any point right now you could turn on classic rock radio through the entire world and there's probably a track (laughs) off of who's next playing on classic rock. It's playing somewhere. So did we did we lose some of what Pete wrote or is that on? No, a, a, a lot of what he wrote. Everything that he wrote, minus My Wife. My Wife was a John Ange Whistle song that he threw on there. Um, the, the real meat of the record is all of what Pete wrote. And if you can kind of connect the songs together, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can, you can hear it in Bargain. He's like, you know, I call that the bargain, the best I ever had. Like, you could tell, like, he's trying to 
sell someone's trying to sell something to you mm-hmm. and you know teenage wasteland and you know it's and you know we won't get fooled again like it, you could tell like you know you can maybe piece together a story out of it he wanted to call it Lifehouse. And in the late 90s, he was able to kind of tour with it, and he got to do his audio-visual thing and get to tour on Lifehouse itself. Okay. Yeah. That was his, uh, the Lifehouse Chronicles, right? That was the Lifehouse Chronicles, correct. Um, So I'm lucky enough, I actually have a a original UK press of this, thanks to uh, Ryan, last name redacted for (laughs) personal reasons, um... (laughs) I almost said it. Sorry. Um, uh, last name redacted because for security reasons, um, he doesn't want people knowing his last name. Um, his father, actually, I got this from his father. And it's one of my favorite records in my collection. It's on track records. It's awesome. And the cover is phenomenal, too. They didn't know what to do for the cover of the record. They um, So they were driving around the English countryside, and they just found this random piece of concrete. And Keith was like, I have an idea. How about we all take a piss on it? And that's that's what it is. Is there? It's it's literally a picture of them pissing on this giant concrete block and walking away. Post piss. Yeah, they're post piss. Yeah, they're post pissing. (laughs) Keith Keith is sitting there putting his belt back on. It it, Pete is in the middle, just all sad, but his head down because that's just B Townsend. (laughs) Very cool cover. I love it. Um, obviously it's it's. Their biggest record in their discography is, is Who's Next. Um, well, and what I thought was cool, you were telling me this uh, a couple days ago, mm-hmm. was that this so this jacket feels much thinner. It, I, Jessica learned the difference between uh, a UK record and a American record. American records, like the covers, the jackets are really thick. And in the UK, they're very thin. Like they're mm-hmm. almost paper thin. Yeah, we we say screw the trees right. here in America. We will print it on real heavy yeah. paper. You know this album again. I can't even pick like talked songs about it. It's start to finish is a phenomenal record. I like to tell people if anybody asks me what is the great greatest moment of rock and roll. If you could describe rock and roll to somebody and say, hey, like I've never heard rock and roll before. Can you describe what rock is to me? And I would say it's that middle section of We Won't Get Fooled Again when the synthesizer starts like coming back in and Keith just goes off with this like insane drum solo and Pete comes back in with that massive power chord and Roger reaches a register with his voice that I've never heard him reach. <laughs> just, and he screams and then it comes back in, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Phenomenal. Like I like I'm literally getting goosebumps right now. Like thinking it's like my favorite moment of music. It's so I used to love that as a kid and run around like a nut listening to that. <laughs> I love it. My hot take though, I do have a hot take Uh-oh. about who's next. I it's the song is okay. Behind blue eyes annoys me. Oh my gosh, why? Because nobody knows what it's like to be the bad man, to be the sad man. Pine blue eyes. Nobody knows what it's like to be hated, to be faded, to telling only lies. Like it's lazy to me. Like it's the laziest work that Pete's ever written in his life. But is that not possibly the point that he's trying to like a picture that he's trying to paint? I, so having lazy lyrics is I, really showing that 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 laziness and the depression and the I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Like it's just like it's. 
I don't know why this the song is just like it, it gets me differently. I don't know why. Like I know people love that song, and it's not like I hate it. And I'm like, oh, I can't stand to listen to it. Yeah. You know, it's not like you know, like a Creed song or something to me. <laughs> but it's I don't know. Like I find it on that record, it just stands out so much from the rest of the songs because I'm like, Ugh. and people love that song. It was a hit. Like people love that song. Mm-hmm. I just think it's lazy. All right. That's just well, me. My hot take because I serve them hot, folks. That's what I do. I think you are on a soapbox, but hey. I, do, I, I always am. I'm always on my soapbox. I'm very pretentious. <laughs> I'm a pretentious motherfucker. What do you want from me? Um, so in between their next record, um, between releasing what is known as probably one of the greatest rock and roll records of all time to releasing a, probably a top 10 record of all time, in the middle, they... Um, in the U.S., they release uh, compilation records. Usually, I have no time for compilation records. Like, I think they're just like a money grab. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Greatest Hits records are, or, or, I think, are like a money grab. Unless you throw, like, new material on it. Um, but the album, Meaty, Beaty, Big, and Bouncy, is absolutely a must-have in your collection. It's very, very cool. Um, the cover is phenomenal. It's a photo of like them when they're all like kids they somehow get like this photo together and then like they're looking at themselves in a window like over at them it's a very cool cover that is really cool i didn't realize i didn't realize that was them as kids yeah that's them as kids um, yeah that's, yeah that's really cool um so on this record is like you get like substitute and you know and um the seeker and stuff like that stuff that was released only as singles but you get them on the on a 12 inch record and it's awesome very very cool love it so they tour massive tour for who's next they go back into the studio pete's very anxious oh my god how am i gonna top you know my best record of all time how am i gonna do this (laughs) how am i gonna follow this up oh my god I want to do another rock opera. (laughs) So, um, from start to finish, though, this is what Pete always wanted to create. This is where I think it's so cohesive, this story. It's just beautiful. It's magical. It's it's very well crafted. You know, the rock opera concept on this is so fully coherent. It's just, the story is awesome. Story of Quadrophenia is about Jimmy a young mod in the early 60s of England. He loves getting drunk. He likes taking pills. He likes chasing around girls with all of his mod friend and the big mod gangs and stuff like that. <laughs> he clashes with his parents about, you know, like, you know, the life and the meaning of it. They think he's just aloof and he's just, like, not doing much with his life. So he goes to a psychologist, but to no help, you know, and he, and he, and he struggles to find a place in life. Years later, you know, Jimmy runs into the leader of his old gang, his old mod gang. He finds out he's just, all he's done in his life is he's a bellboy at a hotel. And this absolutely crushes him. He starts to have a breakdown. He's like, oh my God, this is what I'm destined for. I'm destined to be mediocre at best. Why am I trying? I'm gonna cash in all my chips. I'm gonna steal this boat. I'm gonna drive it off a cliff and kill myself. Wow. While he's on the boat, gets caught into a, a massive rainstorm, and it makes him rethink life. And he steers the boat at the last all second. Rainstorms yep. do for those As of us that watch uh, any rom com. 
<laughs> he cuts the boat at the last second, and he, he decides he's going to change his life and live on. And this is the story of Quadrophenia. Holy shit. This record is so good. All the tracks on this record. Again, this is like Tommy. This is one of those things, listen to it from beginning to end. It is a masterpiece. It is so good. It is so, so, so good. I really like the cover art. The cover is awesome. It's like, you know, it's the mod kid in his mod outfit. He's got like a cool jacket on that says The Who, and he's on his moped because that was what they did. They rode around on scooters and like terrorized people. Um, so when this, you know, it, it took a lot to record this record. It was, they put so much time and effort into it. And it really drove like a, like a fraction in between Pete and the management with his with Kit Lambert, who's been his like his writing partner and almost in a way like his visual art partner. He doesn't think Quadrophenia is going to be good. He thinks Quadrophenia is a waste of time. Why are we doing this? Why don't we just do a straight rock record? Pete says, "You know what? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> We're done. You don't believe in me." I believe in this. Get out. So we, Chris Stamp and Kit Lambert are gone. Those managers. Um, Producer-wise, um, on this one, we um, we get a hold of a whole entire new producer. Um, it's one of the Beatles' uh, producers. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the Beatles' producers, Glenn Johns, uh, he was... Um, like an engineer that worked with the Beatles. He did all their engineering and stuff like that for the last couple of records. Glenn Johns also helped out and was the engineer on Who's Next. So Pete had him come in and was like, you know what? You're going to produce with me. So this is a Glenn Johns effort as well. And Glenn Johns would come on and produce the next couple of records for the Who as well. Um, so the whole record is written actually by Pete. This is the only record where there's nothing from John, nothing. Start to finish, this is all Pete. Because um, at the time, Roger and John were actually making solo records because this took so long to make. Oh, so they're like, you know what? We're going to be solo artists. Keith is acting in a movie at this point. The band's starting to fracture a little bit. But the album is very, very well, recepted very well. Everyone thinks it's a masterpiece because it is. And it's awesome. Again, songs on this, just listen to it all the way through. Like, the whole thing. The whole thing. Um, you know, 515, you know, rain all, Love Rain On Me. Like, they actually made a whole movie about Love Rain Over Me. Like, a very sad movie. It's a Adam Sandler movie who lo- he lost his family in 9-11. Oh, my god! Yeah, yeah. And it's it's all based off the Who song. Like, because it, the song pretty much is him trying to drive off the cliff and kill himself but he gets caught in the rain and he changes his life i didn't know they did a movie on it i mean love rain over me is probably my top five one of my top five that that is the greatest roger performance roger just like you buy what he's selling like he's Mm -hmm. you can hear that whale like he's wow rain on me like it's phenomenal a song on this record that is very near dear to my heart is actually um is the real me now the real me the problem is i (laughs) i'm so drawn to this song because this is the song when i would drive my dad to chemotherapy 
this was a song that he wanted to listen to before he went into the doctors to get chemo. So in every single, I always I took him to every single session he went to, and this is what he wanted to listen to before he went. It was like his hype up song. You know, can you see the real me, doctor? Doctor, can you see the real me? Wow. Yeah. That's deep. Yeah. I lo- and I I didn't know that about your dad, and I love I love that song. Mm-hmm. That was this whole thing. He would get all into it and clench his fist and yell, "Can you see the real me, doctor?" <laughs> and stuff like that. So it's. I had a very deep thing for that song, even though that's really not what it's about. But for the tour of Quadrophenia, now, like, this is like a very involved record. It's even involved more than Tommy was. Mm-hmm. So there's tons of backing tapes. There's like a whole orchestra that's like on a, on a backing loop. They're all supposed to act out their individual parts in the record. And. Keith is starting to really burn out at this point. Mm-hmm. Like his drugs and his drinking are like th- through the roof. Like it's insane. And it all is very famous in Hulu. Like kind of all comes together one night when they're in San Francisco at the Cow Palace. On his way onto the stage, he swallowed a handful of elephant tranquilizer. Oh, be- yikes. Before he went on stage. <laughs> and there's video of it because it's very famous. And you just see him playing. And then you just see him literally out cold. Like, he's just, like, out cold, and they drag him off the stage. And it was less than half the show, and Pete is pissed. Because, you know, it was like, oh, what did he take? No kidding. And literally, Pete looks and goes, can anybody play the drums? Does anybody know how to play the drums? And this kid was, like, freaking out, and he goes, all right, get on stage. The kid played half the Who show. Yeah, he played drums for half the Who show. Yep. That's incredible. So Nat just drove Keith nuts that he, like, oh, my God, I was that replaceable. I need to try to clean up a little bit. So... They're all out of hand at this point, minus Roger. Roger's really not like uh, <laughs> drug problems or drinking or anything like that. But the, th- the other three are definitely far gone by this point. We go to 1975. Um, you know, the fallout of the Quadrophenia tour, the tapes don't work correctly most of the nights. It's leading to disastrous performance. Keith's drugs and alcohol problem is becoming like a huge problem in the band. Pete finally throws his hands up and says, you know what? No more rock operas. Let's not complicate things anymore. Let's just go. Let's do a straightforward rock record this time. Or Keith can't handle another rock. <laughs> yeah. So they come out with Who by Numbers. I feel this is the most underrated Who album that there is. Like it's actually a fantastic record. People don't give it a lot of love. Um, it's a, like they're all in a very dark place in this record, and it, you can just tell. And it's a very cool cover. Like, it's actually drawn by John Antwistle, and it's meant to be a a draw-by-number. And you you draw-by-number, you actually connect all all of the uh, the band. That's really cool. So now, did... Is this copy that you got... Yeah. Someone drew on it. The numbers are filled in. Yeah, someone drew it already. So they don't normally come. No, they don't normally come like that. Somebody drew them in. How dare they? (laughs) I know. I know. Um, the big song on the record, Squeeze Box. Everyone knows Squeeze Box. Squeeze Box is about boobs, ladies and gentlemen. That's what the uh, the <laughs> insinuation is in that song. It's about boobs. So was uh, Meaty Beady Big, big and Bouncy. bouncy. <laughs> that is a boob restaurant. Yeah. They love them titties. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. nothing baby. without boobs. <laughs> Slip Kid is a, good, a great song as well. Uh, a Hand or a Face is a phenomenal song. And... The song that resonates with me a lot in this on this record, um, no matter how much I booze, it is literally like it's so blatant. 
it's so Pete is saying I am falling apart um, I can't I'm depressed no matter how much I booze I still hate myself I still don't like who I am and it's just like such a, a, a mirror into like a good look into his soul and his psyche where he is at that point like literally the line is like I'm a paper tiger I'm on stage and you think I'm this big great grand thing um, I'm just a drunk I'm an alcoholic phenomenal writing wow. yeah very powerful phenomenal 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 writing um now we're gonna start going into where things are really starting to fracture more and more and more um they still want to go forward with a straight rock album but it, it's 1978 they're going back in for another record pete wants to go with more of like pop sense and he's like hey like why don't we like do something a little different a little poppier you know the band's you know we're in a bad place you know pete's angry depressed he's his drinking is next level at this point <laughs> well prior um, to that so in 1976 so it's funny to me that they toned it down mm-hmm. because so in 1976 they actually held the guinness record title for the loudest concert <laughs> um, which I thought was really funny. I mean, they since were dethroned of various times, and Guinness actually took that out. It's not even a title anymore. I'm sure Motorhead <laughs> probably holds that record. I wonder if it's Motorhead as the so it's concert. no one holds the record anymore. So the really? Guinness World Records ended up getting rid of that title oh. um, sometime later because people's ears were actually getting damaged, <laughs> and they were like, uh, "I don't think we can legally promote having loud concerts." That's so rock. <laughs> that's so rock and roll um you know pete's off the rails there's a very famous story of, of around this time where pete runs into you know to johnny rotten and steve jones from the sex pistols and he's in this club and he is hammered and when pete drinks pete's not the nicest human being like he'll admit that like he gets very angry when he drinks so he sees Johnny Rotten and Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols, <laughs> this hot new punk band that's, you know, and he goes up and for no reason. Now the Pistols love the Who. They love the Who. They actually covered Substitute. They love the Who. And Pete Townsend's like a hero to them. So Johnny Rotten and Steve Jones are like, oh my God, Pete Townsend's coming over to talk to us. And Pete Townsend comes up and he grabs Johnny Rotten by the shirt and he starts screaming. It's like, you know what? Fuck you. If you're going to take over, take over then. All right. I know I'm old. I know I'm broken. I know I've got nothing left. If you're going to fucking take over, take over. Oh, wow. And threw him down and then left the bar. And passed out in the um, the London um, <laughs> underground. You know what which would saying. Which would end up being the, um, the, t- like the kind of seeds that sowed out the song, Who Are You? Mm-hmm. That's really funny. Mm. I love it. Don't meet your heroes, I guess. <laughs> no, no. Like I say that all the time, too. I'm like, you know what? Don't meet your heroes, man. Like You're just going to get let down. Um, you know, Roger and Pete really aren't, you know, communicating at this point. You know, the John's used as the go-between. You know, Roger's way more concerned about his solo career at this point. Like, he thinks he's going to be, like, a rock star on his own. And... You know, Keith is beyond in bad shape. Like he's messed up. He gets on this new pills that um, in this late seventies, I forget the name of the pills, but you would take them, and if you drank when you had these pills in your system, you get violently ill. So it's supposed to curb tight, you know, curb tail your cravings for alcohol. <laughs> um, so he did that, and he kind of sobered up a little bit because, like, he felt like crap if he drank. 
Um, you know, he moves out to California, tries to sober up. And they're like, okay, we're going to try a record here. We're going to try best we can to dust off Keith and get him in a good place. <laughs> and, you know, the they put out Who Are You? Now, the song Who Are You is very famous. And um, probably, like, maybe top three, like, known Who songs. Because, like, again, like, wasn't it on, like, CSI or something mm-hmm. like that? Oh, so... Well, also, I will have you know, the Who Are You is my least favorite Who song. Good for you, because you know what? I'm going to take a giant shit all oh, over this you? record. Yeah. If you notice, I don't have it in my collection. A, because I've never found like a really good copy of it. And B, the record sucks. Like, it's bad. That's really funny. Yeah. Um, but no, so it is, um, when I was kind of digging through some facts, I'm surprised you knew they were on one of the CSI theme songs, but... Every single CSI series has a Who song as the theme. I never um, knew that. So there's a CSI crime scene is Who Are You? And then CSI Miami is Won't Get Fooled Again. CSI Cyber is I Can See for Miles. And then CSI New York is actually Baba O'Reilly. Never knew that. So Pete Townsend, he said in an interview, you know, he was like, I just want the money. So he just licensed them out. <laughs> Took and- that cash. Mike and hey, you know what? Good for good for Pete. Cash out, baby. Make that money. And you know, I think the songs on this, you know, the reason why the songs on this record aren't that great is because the original batch of songs that this was supposed to be, again, because Pete's mind at this point was a little poppier, a little lighter. He wanted to do like pop music, and he brought in a batch of songs, and literally the band laughed him out of the room. Oh. And they're like, absolutely not. We're not doing this record. We're not making those songs. So Pete's like, you know what? Screw you. I'm going to keep this in my back pocket. And you know, I'm going to do a solo record. Um, keeps it in his back pocket. And he just throws together songs. And that's why I think Who Are You is kind of trashed. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just because, I mean, Sister Disco is a good, decent song. But I mean, even they perform live now. They only, only play Sister Disco or Who Are You. That's it. Um, the record comes out. And then 13 days after the record comes out, they find Keith dead. Keith dies. What happened was he took a whole bunch of those pills, like the, hey, I I shouldn't drink pills. And he threw up in his sleep. And he, uh, for some reason, this is how a lot of famous rock and rollers die, Mm -hmm. man. They just choke on vomit. And that's how they go. Mm -mm. So Keith dies, you know, from... You know, living his best life, I suppose. Yes, I, I mean, that's that's the way to go. That's yeah. the Keith Moon way to go. I don't have the record with me, so I can't show you. But the the album cover is them like backstage at a show, and Keith is sitting in a chair, and on spray painted on back of the chair it says "Not to be taken away." Oh. And I took that before he died. They did. Yeah. Wow. So like it was it, like people were like, holy, like that's why when people look at the record, they're like, oh my God, like 13 later, days later after the record came out, he died. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Keith. Best, 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 best drummer of all time. Did you know he actually ended up being banned by all Holiday Inns? <laughs> I did know this, but please continue, continue on. 
I mean, I, th- I would imagine a lot of people know the story, but essentially he went and celebrated. He was actually only turning 20, but he was he celebrated it as his 21st birthday. So he was telling everyone he was celebrating his 21st birthday, got absolutely insane, destroyed furniture, threw furniture in the pool. I think he did he drive a car in the pool? He drove a car in the pool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Holiday Inn said, uh, no, thank you. You are not welcome back at any, <laughs> any of our hotels. <laughs> Ah, you know, apparently, like, you know, you know, Keith died years and years, years before it came out, but he could never use the joke, like, because I stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. <laughs> oh, no. <And> I, well, <laughs> sorry, Keith. Too soon. Too soon. Um, so, Keith dies, and obviously the band is just devastated, because, like, you know, the, besides Pete, like, the real heart and soul of that band is Keith Boone and his drumming. Like, it's really the catalyst in that band. So they're kind of in flux at the moment. You know, they do, you know, they do a movie called The Kids Are All Right. And that's really the first time visually I ever get to see The Who because, like, my dad had taped it off of the TV before. Mm. And I used to watch it all the time as a kid. I was like six years. I was probably only six year old watching a a nice VHS (laughs) copy of The Kids Are All Right. Um, They also made the Quadrophenia into a movie at that point, too. Like, to keep, you know, for Pete to kind of keep himself busy. In 1981, they say, hey, we're going to trudge forward. Keith would want us to go forward. We're going to go forward. 1981, they come out with Face Dances. This first no Keith, this is the first No Keith Moon record. Kenny Jones from The Faces. Now, The Faces is a great band, but like Kenny Jones is No Keith Moon. I suppose nobody's really a Keith Moon, but Keith mm-hmm. Moon. It changes the sound of the band really changes at this point because I think this is like what Pete really wanted. Face Dances is a much more mellower record. I mean, it's kind of very weak, very weak record. Uh, Glenn Johns stops producing at this point. Uh, Bill Samadiak, who um, you know produces the Eagles and BB King and stuff like that, is the producer, and you can tell it's a very <laughs> polished. <laughs> Polished that record. Feels, we all know how I fucking feel about the Eagles. That feels a little more fitting for the yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, like it's very polished. Um, the song "You Better, You Better, You Bet" is a great song. I do like that song a lot. That's a great song. Um, the, the other song that I also like is the quiet one. That's a John song. The record, mm. the quiet one's a really great song. But it, it you can kind of tell like this is like no one's heart is really into it at this point, and. You know, Kenny Jones is having a hard time because everyone's like, hey, the band doesn't sound the same anymore. Well, no shit, the band doesn't sound <laughs> no the same kidding. anymore because there's, there will be nobody like Keith Moon ever. Um, they go back into the studio, 1982. Things are just horrible right now between the band. Like, Pete and Keith, excuse me, Pete and Roger don't really talk to each other still. They still communicate through John. Um, they have a squabble in the studio and Roger knocks Pete completely out cold and they say that's it this is going to be our last record we're cashing our chips in this is going to be our last effort and you know what it's a good last effort <laughs> a lot of people shit on it's hard but I actually like it's hard a lot um, you know it's the, the band's barely a band when they're recording this but they still squeak out a pretty great record um, they're all sick of each other, though, and you could just tell, like, at this point, like, they just hate each other. 
and you can, I mean, you can tell the decline with the last couple albums, yeah. certainly. Yeah. But I do appreciate, I feel like that can't be said for a lot of bands where at the, the tail end of their careers, I mean, they put out like a handful of just garbage. Yeah, garbage. Yeah. And the Who really, they called it right. when they knew that it needed to be called. Right. Um, on this record, Athena's a great song. Eminence Front is a really good song. Eminence Front is still played on this day when they tour still to this day when they tour phenomenal phenomenal song uh if you do know the song evidence front there's actually a cut of um not pete singing it of roger singing it it's not good uh they did the right call with pete singing that song because roger singing it is very strange (laughs) so album comes out they say this is the last time they're going to tour they're done they're all set no more um they do a tour in 1982. They do a stadium tour with The Clash. And that's that's the end. They say we're done. 1989, <laughs> bills are probably starting to add up. And they go, shit, we need to go back out on tour. We, we need to do this again. And we should go out for a 25th year anniversary. <laughs> now, I get a funny story about the 25th year anniversary shows. Um, so 1989, so by math, that would make me about... Seven years old, seven Seven turning eight, eight. seven or eight. Um, My dad, his brothers, they all got tickets. My dad wanted to take me to go see the Who's 25th year anniversary tour and got me a ticket. And my mother was furious. She's (laughs) like, are you kidding me? You're not going to take him to that. I mean, he's seven years old. I mean, this is when like back in the day when like. Rock concerts were like dangerous, like they was cool, like everyone's all messed up, and it's it's not like they are now. They're all tame. It was it was actually cool back mm-hmm. in the day, and my mother protested and said, "You could not take him, absolutely not," and I was crushed. I remember my uncle, Michael Jimmy, rolling up in in this van that they rented, and he rolled down the window and he screamed, "Ricky, Ricky, get in the magic bus!" and he just pukes outside the. <laughs> outside the van because he's already drunk oh no yeah and my dad told me he's a kid he didn't really miss much because the it was like pouring rain Mm -hmm. the entire time so everyone was miserable but there'll be another side story about that Uh, so in 1990 they were inducted in the rock and roll hall of fame with the first batch of people so can you imagine that like being in a band and you're inducted in the first wave like, you were inducted, literally, the two bands that they were inducted with were the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Oh, that is wild. Absolutely wild. I, That's sign incredible. me up. Absolutely. <laughs> I would If I was Pete, I'm sure he was over the moon. He's like, to be even considered, like, with those yeah. bands. Like, they were. They were very influential. Like, That's amazing. every single rock band is influenced by the Who in some way. Their song, um, Bob O'Reilly, too, is also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a song itself as one of like the top 500 songs that influenced rock like you know it's it's said when he was writing that synth line he said he put in the soul of mary baba uh mary baba i guess is like a spiritual consultant guru or guru or something (laughs) like from india and pete was all into him so what he said is he channeled his soul and he put it into the synthesizer and that's what came out that very famous (laughs) synth line well hey (laughs) Sure. Um, after the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they kind of go dormant for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, they come back up and uh, they start touring again for a little bit. They start doing a tour, but completely just doing Quadrophenia. 
they would get, I, oh, I was so mad. I was supposed to go with my dad. My dad got to go. Um, they didn't have enough tickets. So, Aww. yeah, I know. They only had like a handful of tickets. So, my dad got to go, and he should have. My dad got to go see Quadrophenia. Oh, twice you were jet. That's okay. That's, <laughs> we have redemption, trust me. Um, and then after that, um, you know, do you, you, you ever watch the September 11th concert? Like, remember right after September 11th, like they did a mm-hmm. big, massive concert from Madison Square Garden, and the only people in the crowd were uh, New York Police Department yes. and firefighters, yep. all the first yep. responders and stuff like that. So it was a concert for them. Mm-hmm. The Who came and played at that, and they were by far 1,000% the best band. Like, they absolutely leveled every other band. I mean, we're talking like Elton John, Paul McCartney. Like, they blew everybody off the stage that crowd was eating at it like it was insane like there was just something about it like it was phenomenal and the the version of like we won't get fooled again it was just oh my god like Mm. the crowd was like going nuts and you know it like it it really reinvigorated the band they're like you know what this is this is cool and john was always the one who pushed for it he's like guys let's just keep touring let's just keep touring we don't have to write new records let's just keep touring on what we have john is a road warrior john doesn't like to sit at home john likes being a rock star (laughs) so john and pete kind of they get this deal done with they were one of the first bands that had like a vegas um one of those stays in vegas like a residency in vegas so it went off very well like they sold out all their shows i think they did like three months straight or something like that like a like three calendar months or whatever and it, it did really well um but during that time our buddy John Entwistle, um, let's say he was enjoying Vegas a little too much. Oh no! And they found John dead in his bed from a heart attack with a two hookers and a massive amount of cocaine. Oh, John! So you know what? Like, if you're gonna go out, why not go out that way, right? <laughs> in Vegas. Yeah, rock forward. star, pile of cocaine, two hookers. Absolutely. You know what? If you're gonna cash out, man. The Cash out, baby. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way to do it. <laughs> um, so after John dies, you know, they decide that, hey, you know what? Pete and Roger kind of bury the hatchet at this point, and like their relationship's so much better. And they decide that, you know what, we're still gonna continue on the Who. We're gonna still tour. And um they toured a bunch of times, and you know, my dad gets sick in about 2007 is when my dad get diagnosed with brain cancer. In in 2008, they did a tour again. And um, my mom, absolutely, shout out to Nancy. Shout out to my mom. My mom did it right. And she surprised me. And she's like, hey, like, I bought very expensive, very close seats. You know, take your dad. Your dad doesn't know. You're going to go see The Who. Go take your dad. And my dad was so sick. And I brought him to that concert. And he was sick as hell. But when that music started, he it was like nothing was wrong. Oh, he I was all into it, and he loved it, and he was so happy. And we kind of got to have that 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 moment with each other, and it was awesome. That's well, really special. I yeah. like that a lot. Yeah, and that's you know I haven't seen the Who since then. I don't know if I want to. Yeah. I don't know, like you know, like I'm kind of like I I don't think I could bring myself I mean, to do it. That's the pinnacle. Yeah, yeah, like it's just like it's something I always wanted. Like it's just like 
it's I always go back and when I I miss my dad so much I always think about that I always think about that concert and like how sick he was and like but you know what the minute that they started playing my dad like could barely stand up but he got himself up and he was all into it and like oh it was it was awesome so shout out to my mom you didn't let me go to the 25th anniversary show when I was seven <laughs> but you know what like you re- you definitely made up for it and you gave me an awesome moment with dad and I appreciate it what a great memory to have yeah. I love that. Yeah. So if you notice, there were a couple other records past It's Hard that they did that they label as The Who, but it's just, it's Pete and Roger. I don't really consider them. I I haven't even really listened to them really because they're not that great. And I don't want to dumb down what I feel about this band and be like, oh man, they should stop or anything like that. Well, if it's just the two, I don't know that I would consider it even the who. I mean, Pete is the who. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, um, so going on with their live band, uh, you know, they have Pito Padano. Pino is, uh, stepped in for John playing bass and is a phenomenal bass player. He, uh, he plays with John. He's in John Mayer's band. He's a phenomenal bass player. And stepping in on drums... Do you know who the drummer is now? Travis Barker. It's not Travis Barker. It's <laughs> not all the small things. <laughs> who is it? His name is Zach Starsky. He's his, like Starsky and Hutch? Not Starsky and Hutch. So he's actually the son of Ringo Starr. Oh, wow. So when Zach was really little, he wanted to play drums. Mm-hmm. And Ringo was like, well, I'm not going to teach you how to play drums I can get the best drummer in the world to teach her how to play drums. And Keith actually taught him how to play drums. Oh, my God. That yeah. was really cool. So years later, he got to sit in and actually fill in for Keith. That's really cool. Isn't that really cool? That's a, like, what a full circle moment. I know, right? That's yeah. awesome. And it's, and it's crazy thing. And it's, you know, it's Ringo Starr's fucking kid. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that brings us to kind of like a wrap, kind of, kind of an end of 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 this episode that's you know that means a lot to me and i hope you guys found it somewhat entertaining and got a little something out of it you know i learned a few things you learned a few things learn me something learned your few things to do <laughs> jessica do you have anything that you want to add in i don't think so i was looking i was looking over my my notes because yeah. i normally pull some fun facts for you but i yeah. think i think we hit on most most of the fun facts. The only one that I did have was at the very beginning of the band. Okay. Uh, Roger Daltrey used to work in a sheet metal factory. And so did you know that he actually made the band's very first guitars? Did not know that. Fun fact. Did not know that. That's very interesting. You're welcome. No shit. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you for uh, for listening. And um, you know, this one means a lot to me. And like I said, it's like kind of a therapy session for me too. So I appreciate everybody. I hope you guys, you know, learned a thing or two. And, you know, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. We'll see you on the and next we'll one. And we're going to see you on the next one. Later.